poets and intellectuals of this time. The innovative minds. The intelligentsia. Those that are breaking down the barriers and choosing a bohemian existence, escaping from dreary suburban ideals and materialistic death traps. Where are these engaging people? The risk takers. The revolutionaries. Those living apart from this big unrest. Those escaping the sterility of corporate junkies who get high on materialistic consumption. Welcome to the Bohemian Beat. We will journey beyond the horizon and find the artists living on the edge, going down into the murky waters of their very existence, where these brave souls have re-emerged with art that is challenging, original, and brutal. You have tuned into the Bohemian Beat. I'm ready with you for the next hour with poetry and music. And let's settle in with some music.
I go. Today we will start with poet and hip-hop star Kanan. Born in Somali, he was just 13 years old when in 1991 his country fell into civil war. His mother persuaded a US embassy official to let them leave on the last scheduled Somali Airlines flight. He says, I quote, I have pretty good examples of what has happened to those who hadn't made the plane. It's not good. Either they became militia boys fighting all the time till now, or they've died. His family moved to New York before settling in Toronto. However, life as a refugee was far from easy, he says. I fell into the traps of immigrant life and economic disempowerment, living in metro housing projects and dealing with all the trouble that came along with that. My friends there in my teenage years started either going to prison or getting killed. That was a real wake-up when I lost quite a few of my friends in North America. This piece, Until the Lion Learns to Speak, is from his album The Dusty Foot Philosopher, released in 2005. Yo, this one here goes out to the struggle in the tradition of the old poets. Yo, the nation of poets. We haven't forgotten that. Yo, in the tradition of Aresi Sekarshe, God bless his soul, I want to say something to you, my friends around the mic. Until the lion learns to speak, the tales of hunting will be weak. My poetry hails within the streets, my poetry fails to be discreet. It travels across the earth and seas, from Eritrea to the West Indies. It knows no boundaries, no 
cheese, it's studied in parts of Greece. I'm sick as far as lyrics, not with as far as gimmicks. I spit barrage and limit the shit they talk and rip it. I'm hip, the hop is living. I skip the obvious women, don't get what I'm presenting. No rims, my mind is spinning. I was born and raised in a place where the tone of flame would blaze, where the foreigners not embraced, where they warn you, jock and pace, where the loners lower their gaze, where the corners slower to chase, where they thirst and turn in the maze, with a pistol upon your face. So come with me to my lungs, the depth and be overrun with passion. See how I come, no cash and free in the slums. The past can we overcome? I'm asking, we be the ones to actually be the ones to free our people from guns. Hey, hey, until the lion learns to speak, the tales of hunting will be weak. My poetry hails within the streets, my poetry fails to be discreet. It travels across the earth and seas from Somalia to the West. Indies. It knows no boundaries, no cheese. It's studied in parts of Greece. Mm-hmm. Say I'm sick as far as lyrics, not with as far as gimmicks. I spit barrage and limit the shit. They talk and rip it. I'm hip. The hop is living. I skip the obvious women. Don't get what I'm presenting. No rims. My mind is spinning. When I get older, I will be stronger They'll call me freedom, just like a waving flag When I get older, I will be stronger They'll call me freedom, just like a waving flag And then it goes back, and then it goes back And then it goes back, oh Born to a throne, stronger than Rome But violent prone, poor people's zone it's my home, all I have known Where I got grown, streets we would roam Out of the darkness, I came the farthest Among the hardest survivors Learn from these streets, it can be bleak Accept no defeat, surrender, retreat So we struggling, fighting to eat And we wondering, when we'll be free So we patiently wait, for that fateful day It's not far away for now we say When I get older I will be stronger They'll call me freedom Just like a waving flag And then it goes back And then it goes back And then it goes back So many wars Settling scores Bringing us promises Leaving us poor I heard them say Love is the way Love is the answer That's what they say But look how they treat us Make us Like a way.
And that was K-Nan with Waving Flag, which became the 2010 promotional anthem for the World Cup, which took place in South Africa. The song, according to K-Nan, I quote, is about facing the odds and coming out of darkness, despair to hope, that kind of transition and transformation. South African revolutionary Nelson Mandela has become a synonym for transition and transformation, serving as the first black president of South Africa from 1994 to 1999. Mandela had long been a leader of protests against apartheid, the South African government's policy of rigid racial segregation. In 1962, he was imprisoned on charges of conspiring to overthrow the white minority government. While in prison, Mandela became a symbol of the struggle for racial justice. After his release in 1990, he led negotiations with white leaders that eventually brought an end to apartheid and established a non-racial system of government. The following piece is from Nelson Mandela's favourite African folk tales from a collection which he chose from every region of Africa. This particular one called The Enchanting Song of the Magical Bird is from Tanzania, East Africa and is about the innocence and power that children possess. One day, a strange bird arrived in a small village that nestled among low hills. From that moment on, Nothing was safe. Anything the villagers planted in the fields disappeared overnight. Every morning there were fewer and fewer sheep and goats and chickens. Even during the day, while the people were working on the lands, the gigantic bird would come and break open their storehouses and granaries and steal from their winter food supplies. The villagers were devastated. There was misery in the land. Everywhere the sound of wailing and the gnashing of teeth. No one, not even the bravest hero of the village, could get his hands on the bird. It was just too quick for them. They hardly ever saw it. They just heard the rushing of its great wings as it came to perch in the crown of the old yellowwood tree under its thick canopy of leaves. The headmen of the village tore his hair out in frustration. One day, after the bird had plundered his own livestock and winter supplies, he commanded the men to sharpen their axes and machetes and to move as one against the bird. Cut down the tree. That is the answer, he said. With axes and machetes, ground to gleaming razor edges, the older men approached the great tree. The first blows landed heavily and bit deep into the flesh of the trunk. The tree shuddered, and from the thick, tangled leaves of its crown the strange and mysterious bird emerged. A honey-sweet song came from its throat. It reached into the hearts of the men and spoke of fabulous, far-off things that never would return. So enchanting was the sound that the machetes and the axes fell one by one from the hands of the men. They sank to their knees and stared upwards in longing and yearning at the bird that sang for them in all its brilliantly colored splendor. The men's hands became weak. Their hearts became soft. No, they thought, so beautiful a bird could never have caused such damage and destruction. And when the sun sank red in the west, 
They shuffled like sleepwalkers back to the headman and told him there was nothing but nothing that they could do to harm the bird. The headman was very angry. Then the young men of the tribe will have to help me, he said. Let the youngsters break the power of the bird. The next morning, the young men took their gleaming axes and machetes and set off for the tree. The first blows again landed heavily, biting deep into the flesh of the trunk. And just as before, the green canopy of the tree opened and the strange bird appeared in all its multi-hued finery. Once again a most wonderful melody echoed across the hills. The young men listened, enchanted, to the song that spoke to them of love and courage and of the heroic deeds that awaited them. This bird could not be bad, they thought. This bird could not be wicked. The young men's arms became weak. The axes and machetes fell from their hands, and they knelt like the older men before them, listening in a trance to the song of the bird. When night fell, they stumbled bewildered back to the headman. In their ears still sounded the enchanting song of the mysterious bird. It is impossible, said the leader of the group. No one can withstand the magical power of this bird. The headman was furious. Only the children remain, he said. Children hear truly, and their eyes are clear. I will lead the children against the bird. The next morning, the headman and the children of the tribe went to the tree where the strange bird was resting. As soon as the children let the tree feel the bite of the axe, the leafy canopy opened and the bird appeared just as before, blindingly beautiful. But the children did not look up. Their eyes stayed on the axes and machetes in their hands, and they chopped, chopped, chopped to the rhythm of their own music. The bird began to sing. The headman could hear that its song was beautiful beyond compare, and he could feel the weakness in his hands. But the children's ears could hear only the dull, regular sounds of their axes and machetes. And no matter how enchantingly the bird sang, the children continued to chop, chop, chop. Eventually, the trunk creaked and cracked apart. The tree crashed to the ground, and with it fell the strange and mysterious bird. The headman found the bird where it lay, crushed to death by the weight of the branches. From everywhere, the people came charging. The hardened older men and the strong young men could not believe what the children with their thin arms had accomplished. That night, the headman declared a great feast to reward the children for what they had done. You are the only ones who hear truly and whose eyes are clear, he said. You are the eyes and the ears of our tribe.
for The Bohemian Beat, broadcasting nationally since 2007 across a community radio network. We just heard Tureg Nomads, Kai Kia, with Ahidinon Tureg, from an album Footsteps in Africa. And before that, Jumi Smollett reading the enchanting song of the magical bird, a song from Nelson Mandela's favourite African folk tales. Mandela was a controversial figure for much of his life, denounced as a communist terrorist by critics. He nevertheless gained international acclaim for his activism and is often described as the father of the nation. In North America, the majority of Africans and their descendants had been enslaved and lived in the South. It wasn't until the end of the American Civil War in 1865, putting an end to slavery, that these new free men began to strive for civic participation. From this rose the literary artistic movement known as the New Negro Movement, or Harlem Renaissance, created by African-American migration from the South to the North, civil rights activism and the growth of black publishing. An important figure of the Harlem Renaissance is Langston Hughes. He lived between 1902 and 1967 and was best known for his poetry. This next piece by Langston Hughes is called The Struggle. It is glorious, this history of ours. It is a great story, that of the Negro in America. It begins way before America was America, or the USA, the USA. It covers a wide span, our story. Let me tell it to you. Hear the wind in the sails of the ships of Columbus? They say one of his pilots, Pedro Alonso Nino, was a Negro. That was in 1492. Certainly by the early 1500s, black explorers were coming to the New World. One of them was Esteban, or Estebanico, his nickname, which means in Spanish, Kid Steve. Tierra! Ahí esta tierra! From the deck of a Spanish galleon he cried, Land! There is land! when he first sighted the coast of what is now Florida. On that coast, his ship was wrecked, and Esteban, with four Spaniards, were the only men left alive. Perhaps because he was colored, Esteban got along well with the Indians. He learned their various languages and soon became a famous guide and translator for other explorers who could not communicate with the Indians. All the way across the southern part of what is now the United States and as far as Mexico City, for eight years Esteban wandered. From Mexico in 1539, he set out with Friar Marcos de Niza on an expedition toward the north to find the fabled seven cities of Cibola, which were said to be built of gold. Esteban was the only Negro in the group. The Spaniards held out until they got as far as what is now Texas. Then the heat and the dust overcame them. They asked Esteban if he would go ahead with the Indian guides and send word back to them as to what he found. Esteban did not find the cities of gold, but he did find rich Indian pueblos with houses of sun-baked brick whose doorways were decorated with turquoise, and he discovered the rich and beautiful country of gold, cotton, copper, and flowers that is now Arizona. So, you see, the first Negroes did not come to America as slaves. They came as explorers. History says that when Balboa discovered the Pacific, 30 colored men were in his party. 
1619 was the year when the roots of slavery began in Virginia, and ships filled with captured black men and women began to sail across the Western Ocean to our shores. In chains, crowded in the dark holes of the slave ships, they sang their mournful songs. Sometimes whole groups of Africans taken on deck at night for air would leap into the sea, committing mass suicide rather than go into slavery. As soon as they were landed and sold, some would run away into the forest and join the Indians. No man wanted to be a slave, but thousands of Africans were brought by force to America to plant cotton, rice, corn, and wheat, to build the roads and clear the forest, to do almost all the hard work that went into the early building of America.
Indigenous Resistance with Eagle Screaming, Red Sky Alight. And before that, Langston Hughes reading a piece called The Struggle. The African-American struggle for emancipation reached new heights after World War II with the birth of the civil rights movement. The civil rights organisation, National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, had attracted many new members and received increased financial support from whites and blacks. Many factors contributed to this new vigour for freedom. The participation of African Americans serving with honour in the war was used to highlight the continued racial discrimination. Rulings by the US Supreme Court during the 1940s and 50s brought major victories for African Americans. Increased support in education, economic gains and being able to vote. A prominent voice in the civil liberties movement is Angela Davis, born in 1944 in Alabama. She is best known as an educator and civil rights activist, who during the turbulence of the late 1960s joined the civil rights group, the Black Panther Party. And when Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968, she joined the Communist Party. In 1970, Davis was propelled to the FBI's top 10 most wanted when a weapon registered in her name was linked to the murder of a judge during an effort to free a black convict who was being tried for the attempted retaliatory murder of a white prison guard who killed three unarmed black inmates. Davis fled underground and her disappearance sparked an intensive public search. Two months later, she was arrested in New York and charged with murder and kidnapping, both punishable by death. This next piece is from an interview with Angela Davis done by her lawyer, Margaret Burnham, while she was jailed and awaiting trial. The interview was arranged by the leading black newspaper at the time, Muhammad Speaks, and the questions were drawn from a poll conducted on what the average Harlem resident would ask Davis if given the chance. First of all, many, many, many people wanted to know, why are you a communist? Before anything else, I'm a black woman. And I've dedicated my life to the struggle for the liberation of black people, my enslaved, imprisoned people. I am a communist because I'm convinced that the reason we have been forcibly compelled to eke out an existence at the very lowest level of American society has to do with the nature of capitalism. If we're going to rise out of our oppression, our poverty, if we're going to cease being the targets of lynch mob, of the lynch mob mentality of racist policemen, we will have to destroy the American capitalist system. We will have to obliterate a system in which a few wealthy capitalists are guaranteed the privilege of becoming richer and richer, whereas the people who are forced to work for the rich and especially black people, never take any significant step forward. 
I am a communist because I believe that black people with whose labor and blood this country was built have a right to a great deal of the wealth that has been hoarded in the hands of the Hughes, the Rockefellers, the Kennedys, the DuPonts, all the super powerful white capitalists of America. Further, I am a communist because I believe that black men should not be coerced into fighting a racist imperialist war in Southeast Asia where the U.S. government is violently denying a non-white people the right to control their own lives just as they violently suppressed us for hundreds of years. My decision to join the Chalamumba Club, a militant all-black collective of the Communist Party, flowed directly from my belief that the only path of liberation for black people is the one which leads towards a complete and total overthrow of the capitalist class and all its various instruments of suppression. The Chalamumba Club is concerned with the task of organizing black people around their immediate needs, but at the same time of creating an army of freedom fighters which will overthrow our enemies. We realize that in order to accomplish this latter goal, we must work in harmony with the progressive forces of white America who have seen the nature of the beast. We struggle for socialism, realizing that the historical nature of our oppression and our continued resistance have placed us as black people at the head of a revolution which must eventually involve not only our people, but great numbers of whites, to crush the system, and finally to build a socialist society free from racism, poverty, and injustice. The second most frequently asked question concerns the question of your flight and your arrest here in New York. People ask, why didn't you use the Underground Railroad, like Robert Williams and Eldridge Cleaver and others, to escape the persecution being waged against you? First of all, I'm sure that J. Edgar Hoover, in collusion with Nixon and Reagan, decided to make an example of me. The FBI unleashed an enormous amount of manpower in this search, much, much more than they can afford to use ordinarily. Because so much public attention was focused on me and my alleged participation in the events at San Rafael, they had to prove to their reactionary contingencies that they could capture black revolutionaries. Therefore, hundreds of women resembling me in black communities across the country were arrested. Not only were my family, friends, and political acquaintances kept under constant surveillance, but casual friends and acquaintances, some of whom I hadn't had any contact with for over a decade, were also under surveillance. Obviously, they intended to block all paths of escape. And we have to realize that I was taken by surprise. There was no way for me to have foreseen that I would be compelled to run for my life last August. Therefore, the entire flight had to be improvised. It was a difficult situation with my picture pasted up all over the country. And furthermore, the press helped the FBI by doing all kinds of articles and, and do, doing even cover stories on me. I didn't escape successfully, but we should remember this. There will continue to be frame-ups such as mine, and we will continue to be forced to hide. Just because they caught me doesn't mean that every one of us will be captured. They set all their running dogs on me. This they can afford to do only a few times over. We must refuse to allow them 
to strike terror among us, for this was obviously the intent of their actions. Furthermore, because of the intensified repression we are experiencing, we have to begin to talk about creating a viable apparatus to allow freedom fighters, black freedom fighters, sought for by the police, to remain in this country and to remain active in the black liberation struggle. There's been much talk, Angela, that you are being used by the communists. Is, this in any way, is it in any way possible that this is so? Any vicious propaganda to the effect that I'm being used by communists can only have been initiated by the enemies of our struggle. There have been rumors that because the Communist Party has come to my defense, this means they are exploiting me, and further indicates that perhaps the party had something to do with my capture. Anyone who believes such flagrant lies has been terribly deceived by the Nixon-Regan clique, for they are the ones who devise such underhanded methods of crushing our struggle. I'm a communist, a black woman communist. The corrupt government of this country could not accept such a combination. This is why they use the events at San Rafael to launch an effort to murder me. As a member of the Communist Party, it was incumbent upon the party to come to my defense. <coughs> Furthermore, through me, the government is attempting to further attack and terrorize black people, as they, have as they have done in the case of George Jackson, Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, Erica Huggins, and I could go on and on and on. Therefore, black people have to begin to talk about rising up not only in the defense of political prisoners, but in their own defense. Despite all that has fallen on you, Angela, do you still feel strongly about the black cause? There's nothing, absolutely nothing, which could deter me from continuing to fight with all my energies for the freedom of my people. And there's no need for me to cry because I've been captured. But there's all the more reason to be strong and keep fighting. During the time I was participating in the efforts to free the Soledad brothers, I continually warned that any one of us could be set up as the next target of the government's policy of uh, repression, of the repression of black revolutionaries. I'm in prison. But like Malcolm said, all black people, excepting a few who have betrayed us, are in prison. And like Huey said, there are maximum security jails and minimum security jails. The latter constitute the condition of the majority of black people, but many among us are locked up in the dungeons across the country. 95% of us here in the women's house of detention are black and Puerto Rican. I am with my people, and we are going to continue to fight inside the dungeon.
and Elaine Boynton with Freedom. And before that, we heard Angela Davis speaking when she was in jail. She was eventually tried and acquitted in one of the most famous trials in recent US history. The American Civil Liberties Movement inspired people all over the world, including Muta Baruka, a Jamaican Rastafarian dub poet, musician and actor born in 1952. He grew up in the slums of Jamaica. In the late 60s and early 70s, there was this uproaring of black awareness in the country and he was drawn into that movement. The following piece by Muta Baruka is called This Poem. This poem shall speak of the wretched sea that washed ships to these shores, of mothers crying for their young, swallowed up by the sea. This poem shall say nothing new. This poem shall speak of time, time unlimited, time undefined. This poem shall call names, names like Lumumba, Kenyatta, Nkuma, Annibal, Atherton, Malcolm, Garvey, Haile Selassie. This poem is vexed about apartheid, racism, fascism, the Ku Klux Klan, riots in Brixton, Atlanta, Jim Jones. This poem is revolting against first world, second world, third world, division, man-made decision. This poem is like all the rest. This poem will not be amongst great literary works, will not be recited by poetry enthusiasts. It will not be quoted by politicians or men of religions. This poem is knives, 
bombs, guns, blood, fire, blazing for freedom. Yes, this poem is a drum, a shanty, ma-ma, Ibo, Yoruba, na Yabingi warriors, Yohuro, Yohuro, Namibia, Yohuro, Yohuro Sweto, Yohuro Africa. This poem will not change things. This poem need to be changed. This poem is a rebirth of a people, a rising, awakening, understanding. This poem speaks, is speaking, I've spoken. This poem shall continue even when poets have stopped writing. This poem shall survive you, me. It shall linger in history, in your mind, in time, forever. This poem is time, only time will tell. This poem is still not written. This poem has no poet. This poem is just a part of the story. His story, her story, our story. The story is still untold. This poem is now ringing, talking, irritating, making you want to stop it. But this poem will not stop. This poem is long, cannot be short. This poem cannot be tamed, cannot be blamed. The story is still not told about this poem. This poem is old, new. This poem was copied from the Bible, your prayer book, Playboy magazines, the New York Times, Reader's Digest, the CIA files, the KGB files. This poem is no secret. This poem shall be called boring, stupid, senseless. This poem is watching you trying to make sense from this poem. This poem is messing up your brains, making you want to stop listening to this poem. But you shall not stop listening this poem. You need to know what will be said next in this poem. This poem shall disappoint you because this poem is to be continued in your mind. In your mind. In your mind.
listening to The Bohemian Beat. And that was Bob Marley and the Wailers with Iron Lion Zion. And before that, Muta Baruka reading his poem, Dispoem. We have come to the end of the hour. I hope you've enjoyed the show today. I'll be back next week, same beat time, same bohemian frequency, with more Poetic Perspectives. And for more information and podcasts, check out the website, thebohemianbeat.com. And please drop us a line. We love to hear from you. We will end with a track called Sabali by Amadou and Miriam, a musical duo from Mali. Both are blind as a consequence of untreated measles. Thank you for joining me on the Bohemian Beat. I'm ready. Chérie, je m'adresse à toi Avec toi chérie